Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. we've done now is create a situation where you have several years of uncertainty. No one knows what's going to happen because no country's ever been down this path before. It's all new territory. It's the day after the Brits voted to leave the EU. London's pubs are overrun with nervous traders. The prime minister has stepped down. Global markets are diving and pharmacies around the world are running out of Nexium and Xanax. Tell us about the Brexit. What next? Full disclosure, stay with us. Today's episode is brought to you by Health Warrior, maker of Chia Bars. Why sacrifice taste for health when we put a man on the moon, after all? Sporting only 5 grams of sugar and 100 calories each, Health Warrior Chia Bars are the only bar with superfood chia seeds as the number one ingredient. They've become my go-to power snack with flavors like coconut, chocolate peanut butter, dark chocolate, banana nut, and personal favorite, mango. Pick some up at stores like Whole Foods, Wegmans, Target, or for my RVA listeners, Elwood Thompson's. If you're bold enough to buy a box of 15 bars, get 15% off at healthwarrior.com by entering code FULL15 at checkout. And by Elwood Thompson's. The success of Elwood Thompson's is determined by customer connection, steward happiness, and local community engagement. We intend to grow our business by offering clean, high-quality products at fair prices with friendly, knowledgeable customer assistance. Elwood's is a mission-first driven business. Real local RVA, and you must check out Brunch at Elwood's now served every weekend, Saturdays till 11 a.m., Sundays till 2 p.m., and The Beat and Indian Wednesdays. Visit them at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from a secure, undisclosed location in London is Lucy Marcus, CEO of Marcus Ventures Consulting. She's a professor of IE Business School in Madrid, a noted thought leader, a thinker, a Eurothinkfluencer. You'll see her byline in The Guardian, Quartz, Fortune. Um, and I imagine you are cowering somewhere in a closet with a cup of Earl Grey, and uh, you have tighter gun laws there, so you're not holding pistol in hand. Well, it's it's really something. We're all pretty much in shock. I think both the people who voted for Remain and the people who voted for Leave, uh, neither one of them thought we would get the result we've gotten now. Can we explain this? Because I like, you know, I joke, um, this is kind of blindsided the world. You've seen drip, 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 drip for the, you know, for most of 2016. And if you watch CNBC or Bloomberg TV or in the Wall Street Journal murmurs about a Brexit, but nobody thought it would actually ever happen. It was more bark than bite, more threat. Um, This is kind of inconceivable. But then you look at the map last night and really the UK divided into two. There are two Britons within one and Scotland and London went one way and Wales and the rest of the country went the other way. What is kind of involved here? Tell us about the entire EU promise. I mean, something that emanates back to the mid-70s. A lot of Americans would just imagine... You know, if you poll a lot of people here, they don't think that it's a it's a wholehearted member of the EU. After all, the pound sterling is still in use. It's fairly complicated and fairly simple um, in that uh, as someone who holds a British passport like I do, um, I can come and go fairly easily. We still have Schengen regulations, which means that we have to show our passports. But once I go into um, Europe, I can wander through Europe without any problem. Um, I can drive without any borders. Um We can easily transfer money back and forth because even though we are with the pound, it's still fairly simple. 
I can get a job uh, in any country in Europe without having to go through work permits or visas of any kind. It's not, though, that uh, like the French hire anybody, though. Sure they do. Look, I sit on the board of <laughs> It's a, impossible to get hired. That's the joke, though, that this this exists, but it's largely kind of on paper. Yes, you can take the Eurorail. Yes, there's seamless travel. Yes, it's easier for immigrants and um, products are more fungible. Uh, but in practice, a lot of these countries still maintain their own identities and their old mores. I mean, it hasn't been it hasn't been such a boon for uh, melding workforce cultures. Uh, obviously, the, the crisis that's gone on, you have the haves and the have nots within the EU. I think that's a bit of a fallacy in a way, because I think a lot of what happens is so intermixed with our culture that we don't recognize it and we won't know it till we're gone. So education funding, some of that comes from the EU. Scientific and innovation funding, EU funds. Even being able to have healthcare when we travel through Europe, I have the right to, if I'm in Germany, I can go to a German doctor as easily as I could go to uh, a British doctor. Um, Which entails a four-month of... wait list, right? Am I wrong? No, just, no, just go, go ahead, go ahead. Come on. I told you I was no, going to trip you up with this. On... <laughs> Look, I know this is, I know this is sober, but I have healthcare. to, I have to throw some some red meat to my decidedly US-centric listeners. But actually, <laughs> what's terrifying in a way is I think a lot of people. People took for granted the things that we get from the EU and uncoupling from it will be fairly complex. And, um, and a lot of big firms, multinational firms, banks and so on, headquartered themselves in, in the city, in London and so on. And um, they are already saying that they are making moves to move staff over to Europe, because if you want to be in um, a large trading block with a strong economy and access to a very big market, you want to be in the market. And if, and if the UK pulls itself out of the market, then you're going to go to Frankfurt or to Berlin or Paris or, you know, somewhere else um, or Rome. And uh, I mean, and, and I sit on the board of a, an Italian company. And that doesn't make any difference whatsoever in terms of, you know, how I get paid and being able to go back and forth and so on. So this changes that dynamic in ways that I don't really think we appreciate yet. Well, you talk about the market here, and it's uh, there's a stat today in Quartz. Jenny Anderson had a great piece this morning. Uh, the amount of money that was wiped out on Britain's FTSE 100 stock index alone hit $171 billion, I'm putting it in dollar terms, at its lowest ebb soon after trading started. In the first 10 minutes of Friday trading. Yeah, in the first 10 minutes. That figure is equivalent to more than 15 years of the UK's EU contributions, judging from what the UK paid into the EU budget in 2015. So it's like with the market, first it giveth, then it taketh away. It seems like this is Maybe the market is voting that this is an unwinding of a mistake. And we we never see very easy unwindings. Um, the, the, the easy analogy, I think, in the United States, everybody's going to pull for Lehman Brothers, that the um, Federal Reserve uh, and the Treasury Department let that happen because we had to see how a systemically important bank could fail. Um, and we're kind of seeing this happen with an entire currency, an entire economy, and, and a stock market, and a nation whose economy is inextricably linked to New York, to Amsterdam. I mean, we're really seeing this play out in in real time here uh, the morning after. Yeah, I mean, in the first, say, two hours after uh, the result was announced, you had more things happen that were huge, which would have huge ramifications in in those two hours than most, most years. So, as you said, 
David Cameron stepped down as a prime minister. He has announced that he will be done as of three months from now. And Scotland, since, as you noted before, all voted for Remain, they stayed in the UK because they were promised that then they would have easy access to the EU. Now that they no longer have that easy access, they no longer feel like they need to stay in the EU. So, and so now there, there will be a second independence referendum within a year. Um, the new prime minister will be decided by about 150,000 people because it doesn't go to the general vote. It just is decided by the Conservative Party membership. The uh, the Labour Party has some people have tabled a, um, a a note of dissatisfaction with the Labour leader, so the second party, and uh, so he may go. Um, and in three months, the UK. Uh, will have two years to uh, walk the path to an exit door. And you know, judging from what Angela Merkel said today, um, who's the chancellor of Germany, um, they're not kidding around. You said you'd go, you're going to go, it's, you know, let's get going. And of course, we've never gone down this path in Europe before, so nobody quite knows what it's going to look like. But I don't think we're going to see a lot of forgiveness for um, upsetting the apple cart. Lucy, I like to joke that, you know, America thinks it is the world. I mean, if you were to walk from Miami to Seattle here and poll 10,000 people randomly and who the prime minister of, of, of Britain is, a lot would probably still say Margaret Thatcher. They certainly couldn't name Cam- – I'm serious. I'm, I'm very serious before this, right? I know, I put- I grew up in New York. I know exactly what you're you know. It about. is it is a kind of world that you know you they'll they'll tell you you know they'll mention Benny Hill or like the three or four things they know about it. I would like you to walk us back and tell us what the original motivation was for Britain to enter the EU. What the promise was. I mean, this goes back to uh, a lot of the post World War II environment and the shell shock that countries like Germany came out of. And as as uh, travel became easier, as as the Berlin Wall fell, there was this push. I feel um, in the in the early 90s for these countries to get together and act more like a block, much like in the United States where NAFTA was was the manifest destiny with Canada and Mexico. Yeah, and I and I remember well when that when that came to pass. I mean, I think uh, well, the European Union is around 40 years old, and it started with a sort of two-pronged aspect to it. First, it was a coming together of all of these nations that were close to each other for defense and partnership and security reasons. So they had been through a couple of wars. Um, It was important to have a relationship with one another that wasn't based on war. And so that was one reason. The other was economic, that that as coming together as a, as a bloc, um, Europe is able to negotiate uh, better trade deals as a bloc than they can as country by country. Um, you also have rules and regulations and, uh, you know, court of human rights and so on, so, um, and that's part of the objection that that people on the leave side had was they felt as if they weren't making their own laws that someone else somewhere else was making them. But actually, if you look at the laws, they're most of them are very good, very decent. And I think the best way to tell the difference between Europe and the U.S. Um, is if you look at something like uh, company regulation. So let's take, for example, um, an issue that a lot of people know about, um, women on boards and quotas for boards. So there was legislation that um, was put up um, to uh, require companies in Europe to um, 
have 30% of their boards be women. You could never have even the suggestion of that in the U.S. And the reason is because fundamentally, uh, Europe is a sort of communitarian uh, politically, it's sort of communitarian. And in the U.S., it's much more libertarian. It's a much more laissez-faire, hands-off you know, kind of a world. And the reason for that is if, if Europe is looking at countries and at companies operating in them, companies have a, a, an obligation of a sort, a, a sort of ethical obligation to support the economy. And therefore, uh, in order to have strong companies, you need strong boards. And in order to have strong boards, you need diversity on boards. And thus, it makes sense to enforce that diversity through um, quotas on women. That was the uh, underpinning of that whole thing and the justification. But in the U.S., companies operate on their own. The legislation doesn't cover stuff like that. It tells you things you can't do, but it doesn't tell you necessarily things you But here's the, ca- the counterfactual do. on that is you're getting lots of you know gains from trade and fungibility well, across borders and easier travel and easier commerce and um, red tape brought down. But you're also losing self-determination. Um, and but what, example, are, what are we not determining for ourselves? I mean, well, look, and, look, and, look what happened. Look what happened with Greece. I mean, Greece is a is is an EU member. It got to enjoy, I think, the fruits of the the '90s and the aughts um, uh, with access to capital markets, with access to lending. And then when it turns out that a lot of that underlying economic activity was, I wouldn't say falsified, but overrated, uh, it's stuck by EU doctrine. It has to take austerity from Brussels. It can't go and devalue the drachma like it could in the past. It, again, Athens is ceding um, economic self-determination. A lot of it is political self-determination to an outside body. You say that, but where would they have been without this body that then went on to support them? So those restrictions and those regulations then enforced upon them because they were not doing austerity themselves and they were not. I mean, they had well, done where, all this. Well, where would know, they be? Where would they be? Is well, I mean, it's it's an academic conversation now, but they'd have the drachma. They'd devalue. They'd go through the creative destruction of any economy that has collapsed over the last several years. If you look at Brazil, if you look at Turkey, the last several decades, that cycle of, of people coming in and buying up assets because the currency is allowed to float. I mean, in this case... So then they'd be owned by somebody else anyway. I mean, the, the, po- the point is that in during the whole uh, Greece crisis, you had um, the Europeans all shoulders to the wheels. They met almost weekly, and you had you know foreign ministers, economic ministers, prime ministers from all of the nations meeting on a regular basis. Even though they had problems in their own backyard, they were dealing with somebody else's problems, and they met uh, seriously, almost weekly, trying to sort out the crisis. And otherwise, Greece would have been basically on its own with some banks. And uh, I mean, that's a, a vast simplification. But, but really, we, are saying, we are saying that in the past that has worked as opposed to, and I'm getting into jargon here, as opposed to amortizing your pain over a torturous seven or eight or nine year austerity plan. In the past, you default. Uh, people would cry bloody murder. Your currency would tank. Your stock markets would tank. Real asset prices there would tank. The IMF would come in, and after four or five years, you would semi-stabilize. I mean, this has happened yeah. in emerging markets left people and right. Have been beholden to hedge funds about uh, you know whole countries that have been beholden to hedge funds and then and then defaulted and so I mean, and had the debt called. Uh, I mean, look, I don't think there's any right answer, but. Certainly, Britain is no Greece. Well, up until now, Britain has been no Greece. And I think we are in for a very difficult time. Housing prices, exchange rate. I mean, the exchange rate dropped, uh, I think, in the first couple of hours, uh, 10% or something. And 
and it's i mean it, it's and i think in the, we'll see it even out a bit i mean thankfully mark carney the head of the bank of england you know made a statement that was very clear about supporting the banks and and having money available to you know 250 billion available to banks um and that stabilized the markets because the markets before he spoke were just tanking so i mean look part of this is it will be fine no matter what because that's the way life is it has no choice but you know the country will be fine but part of the issue is are the next generations will not benefit from things like an Erasmus exchange where you go to school, you go to university in, in the UK, and then you also have exchange programs with other countries where you just very easily move from country to country and you have your classes and it all adds up to the to the same thing. Yeah, you I'm won't... thinking about all those Brits on the coast of Spain that you think, you know? Exactly, exactly. I mean, we have as many people probably outside of the UK as we have Europeans in or something pretty close. There are a lot of people who are now frantic uh, and applying for citizenships in the other countries. Uh, a friend of mine just applied for a French passport. I made sure that uh, that all our passports were, you know, uh, up and and ready to go and so on because you just don't know what's going to happen next. And that's, and and you know, and also currency. So if you have savings in the UK, you just lost a significant value of your savings. Whole pension funds are going to be affected, and you know, the things will cost more. The retail sector will be in trouble, and and it puts a lot of uh, pressure on companies who already have responsibilities that we're trying to get them to work on, you know, around the ethics of their businesses and how to be ethical partners in society and so on. And this makes that extra pressure makes it so much worse. I mean, I was probably in. 30 or 40 planning sessions with boards about Brexit planning. And that's inside of the UK and outside of the UK. So, you know, in Europe, they're thinking about the relationships that they have with the UK, you know, you know, whether people will have the money to buy their supplies or whether they will be able to, um, you know, get uh, whether they need to move their uh, headquarters from here to somewhere else because, you know, bringing money into the UK, is it going to be as valuable if you make money in the UK and you send it out? What's going to happen? You know, there's all kinds of stuff. And the regulation will go, uh, you know, uh, haywire because they are saying that they're going to do everything scratch. Hmm. I think the biggest issue was, um, and it's something that I wrote about uh, last week, which, which is, this is not, by the way, a UK problem. It is this this in-out mentality, whether you're in the world and of the world or out of the world, whether you're really of a leave or remain mentality is not only here, but it, you know, it, this feeling whether you're going to, uh, as citizens and whether the leaders want to work with others towards greater security and prosperity, or do they think that they're better off being isolated behind real or virtual walls? Um, and the out mindset is one that looks at the world with a sort of Hobbesian lens everywhere, you know, unregulated passions and uh, and only an omnipotent Leviathan can ensure that order and security. Well, if that sounds familiar, that's kind of what you're hearing from one of your presidential candidates as well. Now, hold that, very... hold that, hold that thought before you get there. Joining us from the UK is Lucy Marcus of Marcus Ventures, uh, noted professor at the IE Business School in Madrid. Um, you will see her byline in The Guardian, Quartz, Fortune, and we are 
talking about the morning after Brexit. Um, I'm calling this actually the second great stink of London, the first one being in 1858. I mean, does the Thames smell particularly bad this morning? Uh, I, I, I think it smells of fear. I mean, the hope, I, and, and I think also even the leaders of the Leave campaign, uh, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, even they, well, and Nigel Farage, I mean, Nigel Farage last night after the polls closed um, said... Uh, they kind of uh, couldn't I, believe it when I saw them. They're like, uh, did this just happen? I mean, no, it's one no, thing It's one but, thing to politic about it. It's another thing to inherit it, whoever the next prime minister is. I mean, in the yeah, untangling. Well, Nigel Farage, from, who's from the UK Independence Party, the polls closed. And right after the polls closed, he said... Well, I think we lost it by a by a hair or something, you know. And and so even he thought that the Leave campaign had lost, and could barely believe it <laughs> this morning when he discovered, oh goodness, they've won, and now they have to do something about it. So they all looked, to be honest, slightly shell shocked as anybody else who was who was voting for Remain because now you actually have to leave. And, no, I, I, yeah. I, I, I saw. I remember thinking the metaphor of of someone explaining the possibility of Brexit. And actually, if if what happens if the Dutch follow suit? What happens if these other economies that there there is a populism there, and these bigger economies like you know Germany, France, Italy perceive they're carrying more than their fair share of weight as leading economies in Europe when weaker players like uh, Greece or Hungary are are kind of laggards or albatrosses on the system? How do you take this apart? I think somebody explained it's like it's like somebody gives you uh, 10 pounds of hamburger meat and says, take apart everything. Tell me how many cows went into this. It's pretty impossible to 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 disentangle this. I mean, after all, these countries have been inextricably linked now for the better part of 20 years. Well, I think one of the most telling things about the UK Brexit is that you had, uh, if you look at the list of people who said leaving would be terrible, everything from the uh, the European uh, uh, bank to um, you know all of these Nobel Prize winning economists to people, you know, presidents, prime ministers around the world. I mean, just all these experts said. It it will be a disaster. You you just you, it's just not a good idea. Academics, it's just all kinds of people. Um, but what really people were working from is that it's neither facts nor reason that would dissuade voters with that sort of out mindset. It's a very emotive um, sort of process. And you know you you look at you know, places like Austria, they have the Freedom Party. Greece has Golden Dawn. We have uh, the UKIP. Hungary has their own, you know, Germany has their own. They, they all have their own parties that are sort of, would normally be extreme. But again, kind of like what you're having in the US, well, I should say we, because I'm also American, but what, you know, part of what is going on in the US is, you know, Trump, every time I turn on the TV or something and I watch him speaking, he says out loud things that were unthinkable, much less unsayable before. And he makes this sort of politics of fear and, you know, a, a sort of dog whistle incitement of extreme forces um, that already exist, but are sort of latent in society come to the fore. Uh, and and certainly the language that was going on here as we moved towards Brexit was that sort of, you know, very anti-immigration, very them, those people. Nigel Farage put out a, a poster that um, 
leave poster that could have been taken from um you know Nazi Germany it was it you know it it was really shocking and um but that played to people's fears and you know as if in you know if we will be safer if we isolate ourselves how does this immediately how does this immediately impact immigration after all Europe is dealing with an uh, an immigrant a migrant crisis of epic proportions. What with uh, the the failed states in Syria and North Africa, and people pleading to come to uh, the European Union for for any modicum of help, coming in through Greece, coming in through Turkey. What happens there? Yeah, I mean. Uh... And of course, by the way, Greece gets then a lot of support from Europe on dealing with that. Probably not enough yet, but still, um, it is very serious. Well, you look at countries like Germany, where Angela Merkel just basically took everybody in. I mean, it was you know, it was an astonishing generosity, you know, or Canada is the same sort of thing. It was just had a completely open arms policy that was a very different vibe than you had in other places. Here, it was much more limited. They limited significantly the number of immigrants. And and although they did give, the British did give quite a lot of money to um, uh, you know things that were on the ground solutions, but in their own countries. And um, you know, one of the things that I um, wrote about a couple months ago was there was, if you look at the whole issue around refugees and um, and and how we were dealing with refugees, you had a lot of governments and charities and donor organizations that were sort of actively discussing how to share responsibility for the refugees, you know, from the camps and through transit. But the one thing that you didn't hear much from at all was from European business, that even though business was going to have to take up a lot of the slack, because in the end you have people coming and you have to educate them enough to be able to do business, but a lot of them were highly educated. In Germany, you had um, uh, the basically the Federation of German Industries, the BDI, you know, spoke very clearly and decisively about what they, the benefits of refugees and what laws needed to be changed in Germany, the labor laws, in order to fast track them. They, no one else spoke up. You, you did not hear from the CBI. You did not hear, which is uh, the uh, the representative of the British industry, uh, or France, uh, Medef, which is again the equivalent of that. And so, and I, and I think in the U.S. probably the same issue, which is um, actually we need immigrants. We need people to come and uh, and. So demonizing them or, you know, having this attitude of, you know, we've got to build a wall. They're coming in. They're coming in is insane. Mm. It's just uh, to me. I mean, again, this is fairly subjective. I have very strong feelings about that. Though when I do look at the EU's monetary balance sheet, you have the number two economy, the UK, voting to leave. I mean, you can negotiate the terms of the exit, but exit is exit. And I just don't know how the entire block is going to survive this. If you go down, I mean, there's very high unemployment in Spain. You're familiar with it. You're familiar with the youth mm-hmm. movement there. A lot of people are wondering what this social compact has done for them. It's a rigid workforce. It's very hard to get hired. Um, what if this is put up to, what if this is put up rigid, to an election in Spain? The, what if others want to leave as well? 
But the rigid workforce has nothing to do with the EU. It's each country also has their own labor laws of a sort, and and therefore, except for some of the sort of basics. And so, I mean, labor okay, law. Okay, so, pa- so some- pause on that point again. I'm I'm coming from the perspective of of, of somewhat ignorant American. You're getting <laughs> you're trading. I've never thought of you as ignorant. <laughs> no, you're trading. You're trading. You're getting benefits from trade, benefits from membership, but you also retain a lot of your own rules. I mean, Italy and Spain are very different. Very. Um, the capital markets are not nearly as competitive as as the UK's and Germany's, and and the ease of doing business is a whole different beast. And even within those countries, and even within the UK, you look at North Italy versus South Italy. You look at the way the vote was split in the UK. It's as if you were dealing with three countries. There, are we trying to keep Humpty Dumpty together, Lucy Marcus? But now you have to decide which which one you're talking about. You either think it's terrible because the EU is making too much regulation and you lose self determination, or you think it's terrible because you have some self determination, and so it makes everyone. No, this is my this is my problem with it. If you're going to merge, this is this is why joint ventures or double CEOs, you know, to bring it back to a governance perspective, don't work often. If you're going to merge, you're going to acquire a company, you're going to take it out outright, right? And what we've seen here, what we've seen in the in the post 2010 EU crisis austerity measure is effectively Germany and these other strong countries. Uh, right now, I look at the euro as a kind of a proxy on the old Deutschmark. What happens in Germany dictates everything else. When you're looking at the sovereign yields of a Spain or a Greece or uh, what whatnot right now, they're pretty much derivatives. They're plays on Germany's creditworthiness. So they did effectively trade their autonomy and their self-determination. And yet you're telling me Spain still retains its own ability to have rigid rigid laws. And I think this kind of gets to the heart of the flaw, the failure of the imagination of how the euro was conceived. It was a pact, but it was a pact with a lot of wiggle room, a lot of room for people to to goose the numbers like Greece did, uh, for, for people to be kind of half-assed members or half-hearted members. You know, for honestly, for the for the UK to maintain its old its own currency, but to be the second biggest player in the European Union. Am I wrong? I understand the confusion and I understand that the conflict. But the other thing is the world is not black and white. We live in a time where things are constantly in flux. It, whether you're in business, they're in flux. When you know you have to measure, but risks you could have you could have said that in 1858, Lucy. I mean, you yes, were not, you I, no, no, no. That. I'm not saying it's the world in general. Philosophically, we live in a time of flux. It's a, it's like you know you you're skiing and you're at the top of the mountain, and and the one thing you know, no matter what, is to keep your knees bent so that they're nice and springy, so that whatever bump comes along, you're ready for it. You don't know what the bumps are. It's a sort of unknowable unknowables, but you know that you have to keep your knees bent. And at least there are some bumps to the, you know, that, that you'll come across where you'll be more powerful because you're part of a larger unit than if you, you know, if you have to develop, if every country, every little country, you know, uh, you, you mentioned Holland before and so on. I mean, if every little country um, had to negotiate on its own, it wouldn't have the weight, the power to be able to negotiate the good deals that it gets now. And the UK, I think we've now dropped to the eighth largest economy or something. I mean, it's just, we, we, we will, there's no doubt, suffer. We will survive because countries survive, you know, and and, and that's what happens. Um, and smart people will put their minds to it and sort it out. So, but it will not be without significant pain and discomfort. And I don't think that um, the people who voted for leave because they wanted, you know, self-determination, more self-determination and so on, understood 
because I don't think also it was explained very well what what the trade-off is. You know, it's it's the social compact. You live in a society, and in order for the safety of the society and so on, you give up some certain things. But of course, what you get back is is really very big. So um, this the, they were throwing around big numbers about. Um, uh, we put in so much money uh, f- for uh, from from the UK into the EU, and um, well, that's a lot. But then they didn't calculate how much we get back. We get back a lot of things, and you know we have uh, so many scientists, so many academics, so many business people who are not British. Who are it's easy to hire them. And uh, because, you know, they're the smartest in the world and, you, you know, places like Cambridge and Oxford and so on. What's going to happen now? I mean, are we going to send all those people, all those really bright students, all those really bright academics, all those scientists and, and the EU funding for science and innovation and technology? We won't get that anymore. So uh, then people will move their labs to Germany. Now, I will, I will readily concede, Lucy Marcus, that I am not... I was not a bright, uh, well-traveled, worldly student. I'm a guy with a podcast microphone and an ability to connect to you via Skype right now. I'm, a, I'm a, uh, an American citizen, naturalized albeit, who likes full sugar RC cola. I enjoy Big Macs on occasion, uh, full-fat pizza. Uh, I have limited scope and ability to kind of you know volley the serve with you on, on these fine points of, of Eurocentrism. But I do want to get – I want to attempt, however half-assedly, to get at a more – high concept um, discussion point with you. I yes. do notice that this world right now, you talk about um, economically, multilateralism is the way of the world. The Federal Reserve in the United States cannot act unilaterally the much, much, you know, like it could 30 or 40 years ago, just focus like a laser beam on inflation or or unemployment at home. It has to worry about the ripple effects of contagion. We saw how uh, 2008 emanated across the planet. We have that, but then kind of diplomatically and politically, uh, it's not it's not a multilateral environment. I mean, the, the monetary, I mean, there seems to be unanimity between a Janet Yellen and a Christine Lagarde and uh, some of the, the purse strings holders across the planet. But politically, we're all headed in separate directions. How do you how do you reconcile those two? I'm not sure I agree completely with the premise. I mean, one of the things— The one time I tried to sound smart and sound on par with you, you had to knock me down right off the bat. No, no, no. I appreciated what you said. I'm just not sure I agree with that. Is that all right? Yes, that's fine. (laughs) And by the way, you're you're not fooling anybody. Everybody knows how smart you are. I'm not. Um, I'm just an American guy who likes Big Macs. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm an American girl who likes uh, Breyer's mint chocolate chip ice cream. I mean, you know, where where are we now? <laughs> but you can <laughs> occasionally put on a nice affect, a nice British accent, you know? I never do. You know I never do. Uh, I, I think I sound more Canadian. I've cleaned up my I accent. think you chum with, with Lady Grantham and all those peeps. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> She's not real. <laughs> so um, I, I think there are a couple of things. Again, you know, you there are so many universals. You know, in 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 the world as it exists today, money doesn't know any boundaries. Hedge funds invest everywhere. Uh, sovereign wealth funds invest everywhere. There are universals. You know, in my world of corporate governance and boards, um, you know, you can't say anymore in Japan that's not the way we do it. We don't need to have that because actually, you're not just going 
getting Japanese money, you're getting Norwegian money and so on. So you, so it's a fallacy to think that actually we live in a walled off way. We get goods from other countries, we send goods to other countries. And, and one of the most interesting things to me about um, this sort of out mindset is it's extremely ironic that you know, as you're seeing more of this sort of isolationist out mindset in the UK, in the US with Trump, you know, in, in other countries, you know, um, that companies, technology companies in Silicon Valley and beyond, who have long been criticized as very inward looking and isolationist and sort of self-obsessed, are moving as fast as they can to an in mindset. Tim Cook, uh, you know, Apple's CEO, goes to India. So does Microsoft's CEO. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg learned uh, Mandarin and went to China. All of these companies are working so hard at investing in building more efficient translation software to make working anywhere and with anyone simple. Um, you know, we're talking on Skype. I can talk to my mother-in-law who only speaks German on Skype as well because uh, Skype lets me go back and forth with a translation. Um, and so multinationals the world over know that in order to grow and thrive, they must look at other partnerships and relationships and other markets beyond their home countries. And yet now countries themselves need to apply that as well and, and not go down this path. You know, the sort of Trump's uh, Pied Piper-esque, you know, sort of drawing people down a, a path of, you know, hate and uh, fear and so on of the other, when actually if you embrace the other, uh, we'll have stronger businesses, stronger relationships, because the world is getting smaller, but in a good way, not in a bad way. This leads to weird uh, risk appetite uh, behaviors and volatility behaviors. For example, everybody talks about the, the you know, German uh, bond yields into negative territory. They're again negative today. Uh, that might represent a flight to quality or a fear of risk across the continent, but it also could have unintended consequences when money costs nothing in so many countries. You look at Switzerland, you look at some of the Scandinavian countries, you look at the United States where the argument here is that the Federal Reserve should have been normalizing rates after the emergency levels that it brought it down to after the financial crisis. And now we're, we're eight years into this experiment and many people out there Many critics, and this is where I get back to the the pratfalls of of economic multilateralism. They're saying that, you know, I'm not I'm not being jingoistic, Lucy, but that Janet Yellen at the Federal Reserve should concentrate on United States issues and the fact that the economy here is is close to full employment, that asset bubbles persist, that there's a a, a troubling amount of money that's gone into junk bond funds, that real estate speculation is back. We're seeing mortgage ads. If we were just to worry about how the world would react to the United States risk-free rate or 10-year bond yield, then we don't have the self-determination we need to address our own economic issues. Yeah, but you'd never have that. We are inextricably linked. I mean, it turns out Yellen was right to wait because she was. She, you know, noted that the Brexit there was a chance of leave, and everyone went, "Oh, that's ridiculous!" But surprise, <laughs> here we are. Surprise to everybody. I mean, is I it wait? Is it inside baseball to think if she didn't do anything to interest rates, we still remain the uh, reserve currency of choice, and people would plow into the safety of U.S. Treasuries anyway and bring our yields down? So. The Federal Reserve right now does not need the United States yields to go down. If anything, it wants to normalize them. It controls short-term rates, but the market is saying we're ready to, to borrow money. You know, we're ready to get close to nothing uh, from Germany and, and maybe a point in change from the United States. 
Yeah, but that's the thing. Because of the uh, extraordinary connective links, you know, the connective tissue that that binds us all together through trade, through um, education, through science and innovation, through I mean, we are whether people like it or not, in a way, because they seem to be afraid of it right now. We are linked, and the you know, and and. And and that's a good thing. I mean, I, I I you know, it's true that we live in perilous times, and you know you know just as we start to get our bearings, something happens, and we feel like our legs are knocked from underneath us. Um, you know, terrorist attacks, or you know, in in another country, have reverberations all over the world. You know, um, within the airline industry, within you know, building and infrastructure, everything we do. Um, you know, there are risks associated with it, but we are connected. And you can either choose to lean into that and say, we're connected and that's a good thing. It's good for, you know, and that's why we need, you know, sort of universal rules about corporate governance. That's why we need um, a universal understanding on climate. That's why we need, you know, because it's not like, you know, nature or people know boundaries. You know, it, it, actions have consequences and they have them, you know, far-reaching consequences no matter what. You have Zika in Brazil. It's not like the mosquitoes go, oh, we've reached the edge of Brazil. We must turn around and go back. They don't, mm. you know, or Ebola. You know, it's not like it stops, you know, traveling. And in fact... You know, infections spread, you know, because people are traveling. And so as much as people would like to think that a wall is going to make a difference, you know, a virtual wall in China doesn't completely keep all the news out. You know, even mm. North Korea. I mean, you know, over time, openness proves to be uh, a more powerful thing than closed. Full disclosure, we're talking to Lucy Marcus uh, joining us uh, from London the morning after the rather blindsiding vote to leave the EU. Um, the voters came out, what was it, 53 to 48, 52 to 48? It's, uh, it was big. It was big. Well, it's it's not such a big difference, but it's enough to call it a majority. Hmm. I do want to read something that Mohamed El Arian, he is the chief economic mm-hmm. advisor at Allianz SE, uh, used to be at PIMCO, managed a tremendous amount of money and is a great economist and spectator of these events. He said, one of these lessons from the UK leaving the EU, the leave decision is about much more than a narrow majority of citizens refusing to follow their political leaders. It should be seen as a notable rejection of the political and business elites, as well as, quote, expert opinion. And it also illustrates the regional divides that prevail following a period of low growth, especially growth that has benefited some groups more than others. I'd say, Lucy, there's something to be said about that. And you bring it back to the United States and Trump. And what's really interesting about this, I think about how 2008 laid everyone low. But coming out of that, um, it's very easy to say that that people who hold capital and assets and Wall Street have fared disproportionately better than middle class Americans, uh, uh, people out there who are much more dependent on wages and job growth. It's been a capital markets rebound. You've had share buybacks. You haven't had this mass investment in great high paying jobs and payrolls. Uh, and you know, LR and he he did. He couldn't resist the urge to invoke a new normal again in this essay, but that prevails across the rest of the world. You look at Spain. Spain was looked at as one of these great economies. The real estate boom was huge in 2005, 2006. Um, It was bringing in immigrants from other places. Then one crash later, there's 20% plus youth unemployment, and they're paying immigrants to leave the country. 
And I don't disagree with any of that. I mean, and and that's the thing. I mean, you know, a a lot of my work is around um, boards, but it's also around ethics and business and and under and understanding, you know, that businesses are so powerful now. You know, for all of this, leave and remain, and you know, borders and so on. You know, business has more control over lives than uh, than ever before, Um, and so it's also about. You know, holding these investors to account, holding the the companies to account. Um, there's uh, something that I had put together, uh, which was a sort of theory of boardroom justice, but it applies to other things. And it was based on uh, a, ph- a philosopher called John Rawls, who had a theory of justice that was that was about the veil of ignorance, which is if you were to walk into a room and and uh, and you didn't know who you were. So you were ignorant as to what your role was. Are you the CEO? Are you a laborer? Are you the janitor? Are you a, a board member? You don't know who you are. And you sit around the table and you listen and you have a discussion, not knowing how when you walk out of there it's going to affect you. Then it gets down to what's the right thing to do, you know, and and what's the ethical thing to do, and um, and it makes the discussion in some ways much cleaner because you realize that it's a bit of a gamble. You could either be the big beneficiary of the huge salary because you're the CEO, or you could be the worker that's getting paid, um, you know, minimum wage or less. And that means that we're having decisions about that. And I think it's the same sort of thing when we think about governance as well. You know, uh, if people thought more carefully about um, the actual issue rather than about what they're going to get from it, you know, and, and, and not whether they were going to directly benefit, you would have a much more ethically grounded decision-making process. Now that sounds pie in the sky, but it's a mindset that we have to have as board directors as well. You know, when I go into the boardroom, I have to leave my baggage at the door and think, okay, well, uh, you know, if there's an oil spill, um, it will affect the community. And even though I'll be far, far away, let's think about what it would be like to be in that community. Um, you know, you could, you know, the, the problem is the danger is you can get caught up in factoring too many perspectives. But the, the point is really for anyone who is in a decision-making position to step outside of your own comfort zone and distance yourself from, you know, the sort of, um, you know, in the boardroom, I, I uh, you know, always talk about it as a, a, a black box room that's, a, you know, sort of where you, you know, it's a sort of echo chamber where you get in there and you had all these great principles, but the door closes and uh, and everybody is sort of talking around different things. And it all begins to sound like uh, the same sort of thing because you almost forget what's happening outside of it. But when you get back outside of it, you realize that you are um, responsible for the decisions that are made and if it doesn't sound right, then it's not right. So, I mean, it's part of the social and environmental impact that companies have. And companies, you know, will have that no matter what. So we can't live isolated lives. And you can't think, you know, um, the price of cheese goes up in Wisconsin and that's not going to have some effect somewhere else. So then the price of pizza goes up and then, you know, people can't buy pizza, which would be horrendous because <laughs> you like pizza. Um, and, and so, I, I mean, you, you, th- you know, you talked about a Big Mac before, you know, McDonald's operates around the world. So if something happens that changes the dynamic in places that they're operating, they have to make changes themselves. Mm. Lucy, in the 10 minutes or so that we have left, I'd like to concentrate on the path forward. How, if at all, is this going to 
uh, daisy chain potentially. It does. I mean, in the United States, at least, everybody wants to compare something as mammoth as this to uh, autumn of 2008 and the perception that, you know, if, if Lehman Brothers were to fail, we knew that Merrill Lynch would be next. We knew that AIG would. There was there was definitely this 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 weakest link chain of succession. Now mm-hmm. all eyes, uh, however this gets negotiated between London and the rest of the continent, all eyes are on which country next, potentially looking to have a a vote on this matter, or or people suddenly saying, "Wow, if the second biggest economy in the in the union is leaving, then we're going to get out as well." Already, we've seen grumblings from other countries, Holland and France and so on, uh, from people like Marie Le Pen. I mean, would you like Marie Le Pen as the head of France? No. But I got I to gotta tell you something. I, I don't want to interject my Please opinion. Please don't tell me you like Marie Le Pen. No, I got to say, I got to say, why is it, Lucy, and I was going to have a conversation offline with you, why is it something about what she says seems so compelling to me? A Middle Eastern Jewish guy here in the United States... <laughs> No, really watching it because I, I, I guess even even some of the Trump stuff, you know, I, I switch the channels and I see him I see him talking about his casinos or something. There's a there is this almost this, this inchoate appeal to someone coming down from the high levels of monetary policy and just throwing us something atavistic and us versus them. I you know, and I have to kind of step back from it. I was like, wow, Marine Le Pen's father has said and done some awful things. And that party has some awful people in it. But you know what? It's it's not exactly as fringe as it used to be. It's a lot more mainstream than it was. It's only mainstream because, you know, as I said before about Trump, that they, they say he says things that you would never have thought much less said and uh because he he wants to get because he wants to get elected right and i see all these anti-semites i see all these anti-semites kind of imagining the trump that they want out there but in the meantime is his daughter converted to judaism you know is his his grandchild is gonna have a bris i mean you you see what the person does not what the person says i'm not apologizing for them what's amazing to me is that there was a lot of banter and rhetoric in the uk and this forced a vote and you know what a majority of the country came out and said, yeah, let's leave. And now we have to, you know, we almost bl- took our own bluff, our own dare. And now we have to kind of negotiate this somehow and, and figure out how to how to excise ourselves. But you point to it. I mean, you know, if you say you listen to Trump and, you know, uh, one thing out of 100, he says, you think, oh, yeah, that guy. I mean, he his entire thing is about feelings instead of facts. And and uh, and and all of these sort of types, you know, he has this with this xenophobic rhetoric and a fondness for, you know, Vladimir Putin, and you know, he sort of epitomizes this out mindset that I was, you know, hyperbolic, malicious, pompous, hostile to anyone who defies or disagrees with him. You know, be it the press and the Washington Post, or where you uh, tell me judges. you're not, you tell me you're not mesmerized by a shirtless, strapping Vladimir Putin. I think everyone in the world is. <laughs> You're well, lying. You're lying if you tell me you're not mesmerized. Not really my type. <laughs> Have you ever looked into his eyes? I can see his soul when I look into his eyes. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, but I think, you know, what What the most difficult and confusing thing, if you look at, at America, is, you know, some senior Republicans, you know, to their credit, have disavowed his sort of Pied Piper-esque effort to sort of lead Americans over this cliff of, you know, isolation and bigotry. But But others, you know, even when they're confronted with his, you know, insults at Latinos and Muslims and women, um, seem to have sort of walled off their consciences. You know, Paul Ryan is like, he's constantly trying to separate what the guy says from what the guy does, but actually what the guy says is what he does. You know, it's, and, and, 
And instead of thinking about, you know, sort of soft power, you know, the things that actually make the world go around, you know, bombs are not, you know, the most effective way to get things done a lot of the time. You look at what President Obama has done, you know, with his trips to Vietnam and Cuba and Japan this year. I mean, that's that's astonishing. You know, for someone, you know, for people like you and me who have been around a long time, <laughs> then it's, I mean, and remember a different time, it's, it's extraordinary. And that's, as, and, th- and that's about developing, you know, building bridges instead of living in bubbles. Mm. And I think um, the, the, the biggest problem in a way is um, this sort of contrast between this sense that this out sense of, you know, where you regard compassion and truth and integrity as if they were some sort of vestigial limb, you know, so we've won, the Leave campaign has won. And I would say that's a sort of pyrrhic victory at best, you know, because economies, you know, who go down this path will, you know, wither, you'll have, you know, you know, violent conflict and women and minorities and journalists, you know, will suffer. Um, as a result, I, you know, and hopefully here they'll be able to steady the ship again. You know, it, it's so emotive that just seeing Mark Carney stand up and be reassuring reassured the markets. Uh, who and, is Mark Carney? Uh, Tell our listeners here in this. Uh, Mark Carney is the, is the um, uh, head of the uh, Bank of England. Now, to the extent and, that no one could, no one in the United States could probably identify who the outgoing prime minister is. Could you could you concentrate on who you think is going to assume the reins? from him at, at, what is it, 10 Downing? And um, what's going yeah, mean, to happen from this point on? And is that person is that person going to be forced to be more of a uniter or a divider in this case? Is there anything to be gained at this point from doubling down to the extent that Brexit is already ordained? Well, I mean, as I said uh, when we started, you know, so many things have happened in the first two hours of the day, uh, you know, the day after the uh, the. Uh, referendum that uh, would normally each one of them be, you know, shocking. Prime minister steps down, uh, second referendum, FTSE 100 tanks. Um, You know, this is, that's a lot of big things all at once. And it's almost, uh, there was this uh, situation here where somebody, somebody said on a day when there was a catastrophe, it's a great day to bury bad news. And, you know, so you could have, I mean, I wrote a piece this week for courts about Facebook and it got published and, uh, I haven't even thought about it since because yesterday Facebook seemed pretty important today. You know, Facebook's corporate governance and the power of Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> really mean less to me than uh, than the larger economy. Mm. There were several people who led the out campaign. Boris Johnson, who was the former uh, mayor of London, uh, and uh, you know you see him every once in a while in the U.S. as well. And and uh, you also have uh, Michael Gove, uh, who's a who's been a front bencher in this government and this conservative government. Um, and, uh, but they're also the people that said all of these things about, you know, anti-immigration, anti everything. And so the thing is that the next prime minister will be chosen because, you know, right now we don't seem to be calling an election. So the next prime minister will be chosen by only about 150,000 people. So you have millions and millions of people in the UK, but but because it's chosen by the Conservative Party membership, um, and so all of a sudden we're going to have a new prime minister chosen from a, a very um, conflictual party, because also within the party you had people who were uh, remain and leave. 
as it was essentially a battle between David Cameron saying remain and Boris Johnson and Michael Gove saying leave. That's part of also what makes business unhappy because, and everyone unhappy, because the markets, you know, as you well know, um, like uh, reliability. They, mm-hmm. they don't like uh, uncertainty and they don't like higher levels of risk. And all we've done now is uh, create a situation where you have several years of uncertainty. No one knows what's going to happen because no country's ever been down this path before. Um, and, you know, once Article 50 triggers, and uh, which is the, the, the point about countries being able to leave uh, the euro, and that's supposed to trigger in three months when we have a new prime minister, then um, it's it's all new territory. Madam, if I may say in closing, here in the States, we are a fortnight away from Independence Day. And I love you guys, but I am happy that we did what we did in the 18th century and repelled the lobster backs because I, this is a mess. Even though the world is really connected right now and New York has taken it on the chin this morning and we're going to have to see what bank exposure is to pound Euro trades, and you're going to see all these people come out with announcements over the next week. It feels good to be an American, uh, even if this this island of ours is is imagined. <laughs> I don't know. You say that, but I mean, it was extraordinary to watch our democratic leadership go onto the floor and have a sit-in about uh, gun control. One thing that uh, some of my Facebook friends and I have been talking about is if this isn't a warning to take Trump more seriously, the things that, you know, a lot of people are going, oh, there's just never a possible way. Uh, If this doesn't show that there is a possible way, that anything is possible... Uh, I, I don't know what is. And on that ominous note, Lucy Marcus. <laughs> Lucy Marcus, Dame Lucy Marcus, or Lady Lucy, is it? No. <laughs> None of Just the above. Thank you so much for joining us out of London. I know you're slammed today. My pleasure. It's, I love your show and I'm delighted to be on. Thank you, dear. Full disclosure, our engineer is Sir John Valentine. This fine broadcast is on NPR One. Download it and rate us interesting. Uh, iTunes, give us high rankings there. ACAST, Stitcher, WRIRFM, SoundCloud. And can I get some love from Spotify? Please, please. Uh, we are local and vocal, but global. We accept sponsorships in Drachma, Deutschmark, Lira, and Irish Punts, Bangers and Mash, Haggis, Tikka Masala. I'm Robin Farzad. Back at you next week. Music.